Wednesday together as we continue in our worship. I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Matthew chapter 27, right towards the end of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 27, and we will focus on verses 45 through 54. And it is especially good to have many of our visitors and uh, longtime friends with us this morning. And we're thankful that you've gathered with us and hope that you are encouraged and that you are instructed and that you grow in your trust in the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for sinners by being with us this morning. Let's read Matthew chapter 27. Verses 45 through 54. Let us hear the word of God. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, This, truly, this was the Son of God. Amen. Let's unite our hearts and let us seek God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, how good and enjoyable it has been to sing with such a joyous tone about the fact that death and the grave is a defeated foe. And Lord, in a very real sense, we mock death and the grave in the same way that the Apostle Paul does because death no longer has its sting. But death has died through the death of Christ. And it is Him, the Lord Jesus, our Lord, who descended into the depths of death itself. And as we sung, He tore the bars away, leaving death a defeated foe, dealing a death blow to what was the sinner's greatest enemy. Father, we thank You that as Your church, those that You have taught to love and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, We have nothing in life or in death which we have to fear. As we read here from Matthew, our Lord Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, who was buried, and who rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that it is because of His unique death and resurrection that the veil has been torn, that sinners now through Christ are welcomed and beckoned to come to know the true and the living God. And it is through His resurrection that we are assured of our own resurrection unto everlasting life for worlds to come, unto all ages. Father, encourage our hearts from Your Word this morning. Lord, it is so good for us to, even when we are not necessarily hearing about new things, it is so good for us simply to be reminded 
of the glories of Christ for us. And so we pray that you would come by your Spirit, illumine our minds, renew the affections of our hearts as we behold Christ in His glory and in all of His love. And we pray, Lord, for any who are here who are strangers to Christ. Father, we pray by your Spirit, make them willing in the day of your power. We ask, send your Spirit and awaken their hearts and their minds to see the dreadfulness of sin, the dreadfulness of the wrath and justice of God towards sin, and that they would be moved by the loveliness of Christ, the condescension of Christ. Father, do it for your glory, we pray. Draw near to us, glorify yourself, glorify your Son, glorify your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> there are two questions in our children's catechism that we use uh, to train our children and ourselves as adults. Number 50, the question is, what day of the week is the Christian Sabbath? And the answer given is the first day of the week called the Lord's Day. And question 51 is a follow-up to that question, and it asks, why is it called the Lord's Day? And it gives this simple but profound answer. Because on that day, Jesus rose from the dead. And I appreciate that simple answer from our catechism for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons is because that answer, why is it called the Lord's Day? Because on that day, Christ rose from the dead. What that does is it weaves into the fabric not only of our children's thinking, but also our thinking that the entire reason the church exists, the entire reason the church gathers every Sunday to worship, and not just on Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday or whatever you want to call it, but the reason we exist and gather is because on this day, the first day of the week, our Lord Jesus rose both literally and bodily as a victor over the grave. Because that happened publicly and historically. The Son of God who was slain for our sins and was put into a rich man's tomb and was one of the dead for three days wrestled death in its own domain and came forth out of the tomb our living champion, never to die again. And the reason, one of the reasons I like the answer to that question is because it keeps us as God's people, it keeps us from thinking that the resurrection is somehow something disconnected or in addition to the gospel that we merely think about once a year. But rather, it reminds us that the resurrection is the very foundation of the Christian faith. Paul says, said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised, and by that he means, if, as some of you are saying that the resurrection does not happen, he says, if Christ stayed dead, your faith is in vain and we are still dead in our sins. Because here's the bottom line. If Jesus failed to rise from the dead, Jesus was a liar. And Jesus failed to do what He said He would do. If He did not raise from the dead, then He is no different than any of you or I when we go into the grave. And what that means is if Jesus didn't uniquely come out of the grave, all that means is that He is yet another sinner condemned by the law, conquered by the curse. But if Christ has risen and is risen, it changes everything. Indeed, one rising from the dead is worthy to have His own day every week. One rising from the dead is worthy of a life given to Him and worthy of our devotion and an eternity of praise. I have no doubts that some of us are here this morning and being at church is something 
of something that's not that common for you. And you're probably here simply because it's Easter. This is what we do. It's part of the tradition. We go to church. Others of you, I know, are here on your own accord because you embrace Christ in your heart and you know that your entire life revolves around this living and risen Savior. But regardless of whatever your reason is for being here this morning, you need to understand that it is God's mercy to you that you are here this morning because He's making known to you the Gospel. What every sinner needs to hear this Sunday, just like they need to hear every other Sunday, is the glories of the Gospel. Of Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners. And what better way to behold the glory of God in Christ than to sit at the foot of the cross? What I want us to do in terms of outline this morning is I want to I see from this passage five glorious things. Not, not a fancy outline. Five things that should simultaneously pierce the sinner's heart as we behold the severity and the unflinching justice and wrath of God towards sin. And simultaneously, five things that should melt our hearts to praise as we realize that it is nothing other than the love of God towards sinners that causes what we are seeing here. Let me pick us up with a bit of context as we just jumped into Matthew 27. The Lord Jesus has come to the end of His earthly ministry. He has perfectly to this point fulfilled everything which His Father had sent Him into the world to do. He has come. He has preached the kingdom of God to sinners. He has foretold His own death and His resurrection. He has healed. He has cast out demons. And now, His final hour is at hand. The apex of His work has come. The time has come to offer His own sinless life as the Lamb of God without blemish as a sacrifice for the sins of His people. And up until verse 45, which is where we, we jumped in this morning, up until verse 45, the emphasis of Matthew's narrative here has been to focus on Jesus' suffering at the hands of men. That's been the emphasis thus far. He's been arrested by the leaders of His own people. He's been charged with blasphemy. He has been beaten and scourged and mocked and crowned with thorns. Condemned both by the Jews and the Romans to crucifixion. And even as Matthew records the first three hours of His hanging upon the cross, it focuses on the cruelty of sinners. He's been mocked by a sign that sarcastically reads the King of the Jews. The soldiers have mocked Him by dividing His garments in front of Him. The crowds wag their heads as they walk by and they mock Him saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days come down from the cross. The chief priests mocked Him saying, you who could save others cannot save yourself. Even the two criminals who hung next to Him derided Him. But now for our focus in our passage this morning, in verse 45, something essential changes in Matthew's description. No longer does the scene focus upon Jesus enduring the, sinful, the wrath of sinful men, but now to Jesus enduring the wrath of the Father. That brings us to the first thing that I want us to see this morning, Christ's darkness. Christ's darkness. Verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now, Matthew here is giving us Roman time. Uh, there's two different types of timekeeping sometimes in the New Testament. Roman time, the first hour starts at about sunrise, 6 a.m. Mark tells us that he was crucified at the third hour, which means about 9 a.m., and he hung there for three hours until 12 p.m. noon, 
And now at 12 p.m. noon, the sixth hour until the ninth hour, which would be about 3 p.m., suddenly the sun goes dark and the land is filled with darkness. For three hours. This is not a natural phenomenon. This is not a natural coincidence. This is a cosmic, supernatural, divine attestation that the judgment of Almighty God is at this moment falling upon the sinless Lord Jesus. This darkness at midday testifies that it is now that the Father is making Him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. It's very reminiscent of Exodus when God caused deep darkness to fall upon uh, the Egyptians for three days. And subsequently at Mount Sinai and there is darkness and a tempest when God reveals His holiness to Israel in His law, here in its greatest demonstration, the unflinching justice and holiness of God descends upon His Son in midday. Amos chapter 8, verse 9 prophesied, It shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Brothers and sisters, my unbelieving friend, how fitting it was that when Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, how fitting it was that when He came into this world, it was announced by a great light And now at the end of his life, darkness is what marks his death. Because Christ is in these hours doing battle with sin. And he is destroying the father of sin, the devil, and disarming him. Paul speaks of that in Colossians 2 verse 15. Speaks of the record of debt that stood against us as sinners And Paul says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to a public shame, triumphing over them in the cross. If Christ's entire life up until this point has been a training exercise towards growing in His obedience and growing in His doing battle with the devil and with the temptation of sin... This is now the great fight. Everything has led up until this moment as Jesus now steps into the ring of Golgotha, which means place of the skull. As one commentator put it, Jesus steps into Golgotha to defeat death on its own dunghill. And in order to deliver us, His people, from the utter darkness... Christ Himself is made to walk through darkness. And Christian, who can fathom the agony of soul that Jesus experienced in these three hours? We we are not told a single word that He spoke in these three hours. But it seems He retired into the afflictions of His soul, the agony and the crushing weight of feeling the wrath of God burn against him as he bears it without the support of the the Father coming to his deliverance. As he wrestles here with our enemy sin, facing the displeasure of his Father, not because his Father was angry at because of his sins, he had none, but because of our sins placed upon him. And he is being made an offering and a curse for our sins. Christian, never before this moment and never after has there been or will there ever be three hours of darkness like this. That brings us to the second thing. After Christ's darkness, Christ's cry of agony. His cry of agony. In verse 46... Jesus breaks His silence with a loud cry. 
And this is a cry that's been rightly called the scream of the damned. It is the despairing cry of the one utterly forsaken by God. Brothers and sisters, what we are seeing here as the Son cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is one of the holy of holies in terms of divine mysteries. Matthew tells us that in a loud voice, because of the anguish of his soul, the Son cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's, it's an exact quotation from Psalm 52, David, or excuse me, Psalm 22, David's cry. And just to be clear, he did not cry out, Elijah, Elijah, which is what some of the hearers here thought he was doing in verses 47 through 49. He's not crying out for the help of men here. He is crying out to his father whom he loves and trusts and whom he knows that his Father still loves him. And yet he's crying out, my God, why? Think of it. The only one who does not deserve to be forsaken by the Father is forsaken. The darling of heaven. This cry here does not, we shouldn't understand this the wrong way. It doesn't mean that suddenly there was some break in the unity of the Trinity, in the fellowship of the Father with the Son. In fact, as one Puritan said, the Father was never happier with his Son than when he was most angry with him. But what is meant here is that the Father has delivered his Son over to the greatest of enemies. And for the present, the Father is not delivering Him. The Father sends no angel to come this time and minister to the Son. There is no human aid sent to comfort Him. But God, as it were, the Father hides His face and He lets His Son tread the valley of death alone. Why alone? Because that is what had to be required for Him to redeem His people. This anguish is what was required for Christ the Son to accomplish the terms of that eternal covenant that He made with His Father in which the Father promised to give Him a multitude of redeemed people at the cost of His own life and death as their surety. Christ here is fulfilling Isaiah 53 that the Lord laid upon Him the iniquities of us all. He's being bruised for our iniquities, crushed for our transgressions. Listen to how Puritan John Flavel expresses this. The inner Trinitarian dialogue between the Father and the Son regarding what is happening here. The Puritans often had a way to bring these these things out. This is a a brief back and forth that John Flavel imagined something of how the conversation between the Father and the Son would have went. The Father says, My Son, here is a company of poor, miserable sinners who have utterly undone themselves and now they lie open to My justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in their eternal ruin. My son, what shall be done for these souls? And then Christ replies to the Father, O my Father, such is my love and my pity for them that rather than they perish eternally, I will be responsible for their surety. And the Son says this to the Father, Bring in all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At My hand you shall require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon Me, Father, upon Me be all 
their debt. And then the father says, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. To which the son replies, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, and though it impoverish all my riches and empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Christian, and my unbelieving friend this morning, this is the unimaginable love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for sinners. Such is the love of the Father for His people that He would give for us His only begotten Son. And such is the love of the Son for His people that He gives His own life and endures being forsaken by the Father in order to redeem us. This cry proves how truly and how literally Christ was our substitute. Literally enduring our hell and screaming the scream that should have been our scream. And as this darkness draws to a close, after His work is complete, after the wrath of God is absorbed and the justice of God is satisfied, the Son of God in verse 50 cries out one last time and He gives up His Spirit. The Son of God dies. And yet that's not the end of the story and brings us to the third thing. Number three. Third glorious thing we see is our salvation accomplished. Our salvation accomplished. Notice verse 51. Matthew says, Behold. And it's as if Matthew on purpose wants us to pause for a moment and to simply be astonished and gaze for a moment at what has just happened as the author of life himself bows his head and gives up his spirit. Matthew says, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so, picture it. Picture it as if you were a, a visitor to Jerusalem this Passover, that the very moment outside the gates of Jerusalem as Jesus dies as a convicted criminal in their minds, Suddenly, inside the holy city, in the temple, God the Father, in dramatic fashion, tears this massive curtain from top to bottom, showing that the door of salvation has been flung wide open. This curtain, the reason this is significant, is that for Hundreds and hundreds of years, every single Israelite knew what this curtain represented. It was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. This was the Holy of Holy grounds that no one could go except one person, the high priest, and that but once a year to make atonement for his sins and the sins of the people. And anyone else who dared cross that boundary is a dead man. And God tears it wide open. One of the fascinating details of this curtain that sometimes, sometimes the, the theme is not connected and you can read about this in Exodus 36 and Second uh, Chronicles 3, is that this tapestry, this, this is not a small curtain, is woven with purple and gold, which first of all signifies the majesty of the one who dwells inside. But also on this linen, 
This um, curtain embroidered upon it is a picture of cherubim. And it's very fascinating. You read through your Bibles and you read about cherubim. We first of all run across them in the very beginning of Genesis, right after Adam and Eve sinned. And as soon as Adam and Eve sin, what does God do? He closes off the tree of life and He places there a cherubim with a flaming sword which signified to sinners God is holy and you cannot approach Him this way without a covering, without being destroyed. Similar picture as we see in Isaiah chapter 6 as the... uh, The angels are, as it were, guardians of the holiness of God. And what that was declaring is that the cherubim were symbols that there is now war between the holy God and sinful man. And as Jesus of Nazareth breathes His last outside outside Jerusalem hanging upon a cross, having drunk the cup of the Father's wrath, that ancient curtain is torn not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. Signifying that this was not anything man had done, but something God had done by opening the way wide open for sinners. And after centuries of those cherubim's job, as it were, to signify their duty to keep sinners away from the Holy One of Israel, suddenly they are relieved of their duty. And now, standing between the Father and sinful man is the man, Christ Jesus. Not with a flaming sword, but with pierced hands. Filled with mercy. Not with a flaming sword that commands sinners not to draw near, but rather with hands of mercy that bid sinners, whosoever wills may come. And come to Me, you who are weak and heavy laden and burdened under the law, and I will give you rest. Come into the Holy of Holies through Me now. Why would you perish? Isaiah 55. Why would you die when I, the very Son of God, stand ready to receive you and to present you blameless before My Father? On this Day of Atonement, the evening which for hundreds of years Israel sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus of Nazareth cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he tears wide open the Holy of Holies so that God now says to sinners, Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. As the writer to Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, that we therefore, brethren, have boldness to enter the Holy of Holies by the new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. Having a high priest now over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart full of assurance and faith. That's the third thing. There's a fourth thing that we see here. Something else that attends the death of Christ. Not only the tearing of the the veil and and the curtain in the temple, but also we see here this resurrection from the dead. Number four, the fourth thing we see is our resurrection. Here in verse 51, Matthew says, "...and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised." And coming out of the graves after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now again, this is one of those things where we have to imagine ourselves being present for this. Um, I mean, obviously there are many questions that we probably have that we're asking about these things that are not given to us here. And I assume we'll find out in glory. But 
Here, you think about what it would have been like for these people. That at midday, for three hours, the sun goes black. Then they hear the curtain of the temple just ripped from top to bottom. And now the earth itself begins to tremble. And the graves are broken open and forced to give up the bodies of the saints that were in them. Matthew is the only gospel writer that records for us this mini first fruits resurrection. We're not told who the saints who these saints were. We're not told exactly what happened to them after this. Did they have to die again like Lazarus? Um, did they, you know, ascend into heaven, get taken into heaven? We're not told, and that, that's not the point. The point is that for all the mystery there might be here, the point is this. That as Jesus cried out, it is finished, and bowed His head and gave up His Spirit, at that very moment, Jesus had conquered death and God the Father wanted that immediately published. He conquered death and the Father wanted to make it really clear by giving this first fruits of the resurrection in order to prove it. Notice the words of verse 53. After Jesus' resurrection, these saints then arose and came out of the tomb. This mini-resurrection is inextricably linked to Jesus' resurrection. And Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28 is going to give extensive detail to that resurrection. But here he just inserts it so as not to leave his readers wondering or hanging. And he assures us this Jesus who goes into the grave today is coming out of the grave. As another Puritan said, he said that Christ was like a deadly poison that death swallowed thinking it had won But Jesus in the belly of death itself slays it and forces it to give Him and to vomit Him up. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, please hear me. There is nothing in this life and in our experience that is more unnatural than death. Death is a judgment of God upon this world for its sin. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, if you and I had never sinned and we had retained our former glory as perfect image bearers of God and served Him with joy and fear, we would literally not have a vocabulary word in our vocabulary for death. We would not have cemeteries that line our cities. We would never know what it is to stand at a grave and weep. But because we have sinned, death reigns over us. It has been given power to hold us in its grip. But listen to me. Death only has power over those who have unforgiven sin. And that's why it had no power on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ had no sin of His own. He was made to be sin by the Father in the sense that the Father imputed to Him our guilt. But Jesus Himself was pure and sinless and blameless. And therefore, there was not one stroke of condemnation from the law of God that could rightly fall upon Christ. Which is why Peter even uses the language in Acts chapter 2 where he says that it was impossible for death to hold him. In other words, when Jesus goes into the grave pure and holy, but as the sin bearer for His people, it's now time for the grave to pay up and give back what rightly belongs to the Lord Jesus now. And the first thing death had to pay up was by relinquishing its hold upon the Lord Jesus Himself and following Him by giving up all the multitudes 
of those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because just as He lives never to die again, so too all who trust in Christ, even though they die, yet shall they live. And God demonstrates that tangibly here in this resurrection. Because our sins have been put away by the death of Christ. And death has dis- uh, Christ has destroyed death. And the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, through the sacrifice of himself. It's incredible. You think about how simple the resurrection story is and yet how glorious the things that we're talking about are. Even as we sung that second hymn this morning, I think one of the most glorious things about that hymn is that it's one of the most cheerful hymns you will ever sing. And it's a hymn that mocks death. And that's part of the point and part of the power. Is that we don't sing deep, dirgy tone because we're kind of fearful that maybe death really isn't as destroyed as we think it is. But we stand confident with Paul, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Death is done. Destroyed. Christ has risen from the dead. And that changes everything for the Christian. Which is why Revelation refers to the Son of God as the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. Hades doesn't belong to the devil. He doesn't decide who goes there. Christ is the one slain from before the foundation of the world who has bound the strong man and will plunder the strong man, the devil, and will take from Satan's kingdom, all for whom he died. And he will raise them to resurrection life. That brings us to the fifth and final thing this morning. The fifth thing that we see here is the sinner's response. And I want to close here on a personal note, just as this passage closes on a personal note. Look at finally verse 54. Matthew gets very personal now. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. My unbelieving friend, I want to close on this personal note. The glories of the Christian Gospel, which you've heard something of this morning, of the death of Christ and His being the sin-bearer and the resurrection of Christ. These are not just facts, but they are facts by which God demands from you a response. It's not enough simply to hear that Christ died according to the Scriptures for our sins. But you must believe that Christ died according to the Scriptures for your sins. And that He rose again the third day. This centurion stands apart from the Jews who mocked Christ. The Jews who even after His death and even after they heard the tomb is empty, they continue in their unbelief and think, how can we make up an excuse for why He's gone? Unlike them, this Gentile centurion guard realizes, no, this is none other than the Son of God. He owns the Messiah's title, His identity. That He is one who spoke truly of who He was and what He would do. I want to close this morning by posing to you that very simple but important question. Unbeliever, what will you do with Christ? What will you do with Christ? Will you, humbled in your heart, pierced in your own heart for sin, realizing as you've read Matthew's account that this darkness and this cry of 
agony and dereliction, that happened because of how horrible my sin is before God. Will you stand pierced in your own heart, humbled for your own sins, and realize I need Christ? Or will you stand afar off and continue scoffing at the cross? Continue thinking you're fine of just going about it yourself. You don't need help. You don't need to be saved from anything. If there is a God, certainly He will be the way that I think He should be. And He'll accept me on my terms. Listen to me, unbeliever. If, if that's you this morning, the Christian Gospel is not one of many, many feasts that God spreads for you to choose which one you like. And I know there are plenty of other false spreads that the devil and his minions have deceived many with. But my friend, the Gospel is the Gospel of God. And He's testified to it by the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Name one other Savior or one other Gospel that has its main character promising and then doing both the laying down of His own life and having the power to then take it up again. Jesus is not one choice of many that you have. It is come to the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy or perish and face the wrath of God for your own sins. This cry of abandonment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is rightly the cry of every sinner who remains outside of Christ. And you need to understand it would not be unjust of God to this very day and this very moment cast each of us into hell because of our high-handed rebellion against His holiness and our refusal to come to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet God in His grace and His mercy, what does He do? He gives you yet another day. You get to sit under the preaching of the Gospel. You get to hear of Christ and His death and His resurrection and His conquering glory. And yet again, God the Father says to you through His Word in all sincerity, come to My Son and you will not be cast out. Come and find rest for your souls. My friend, he heed the Word of God. Why would you perish? Why would you die? Why would you spend your money for that which is not bread? Come without money and without price and take freely from the Lord Jesus. Take from His fullness. There is more holiness and righteousness in Christ than there is sin in us. Which is why when He touches the lepers, He does not become leprous, but they become clean. That is a picture to us of the Gospel. If you come to Him as dirty as you are, and you are just as I am, and you don't dress yourself up at all, and you shouldn't, and you come honestly confessing, God, what You have said about my sins is true more than I even know. And I know that I am heinous, impure, unholy. But I come on the basis of Your Word and on the basis of the Word of God who cannot lie that You gave Christ for me and sinners like me so that if I trust Him, I will be made clean. Non-Christian, trust Christ. Hear His Word. May God, by His Spirit, have mercy upon your soul. Let's pray. Father, how glorious is the Gospel. How warm, heartwarming it is to think about the death of death in the death of Christ. 
Father, truly every day of our lives should be filled with abundant and just overflowing joy when we think upon the fact that Christ lives. When we think upon the fact that our God who cannot fail is the one who has torn the veil from top to bottom. That the tombs bursted open. That what death held for a time was bought back by Christ most certainly. And that we know that us, by having faith in Christ, we are among those who will be eternally blessed, who will rise not to the resurrection of condemnation, but under the resurrection of life. Father, thank You for the glories of the Gospel of God. We pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know Christ, whether they be outright enemies, whether they just be unsure we pray that You'd press upon their hearts the, the urgency of the Gospel, the narrowness of the Gospel, the necessity of truly closing with Christ by faith in our hearts. Lord, stir, stir their hearts up by the terrors of Your law, the terrors of judgment, that they would flee to the warmth and the music and the good news that is Christ crucified for sinners. Father, thank You for Your mercies. We pray for us as Your people who have already known You by Your grace. We come this morning thankful that for some time You've opened our eyes. You've taught us the fear of God and the love of Christ. Father, we pray that we would be encouraged to serve You more faithfully. We pray that that our circumstances would not dictate our levels of joy, but rather, Father, that we would remember that because Christ lives and because He will never die, die again, so too we always have hope, even on our worst days. Father, thank You for Your mercy towards sinners, Your patience with Your people. Thank You that Christ is a merciful and patient High Priest. Thank You for Your Spirit who communicates Christ to our hearts and calls us, causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, as sons of God. Be with us this Lord's Day. Help us to be faithful in our witness. Bless our fellowship with the saints. Cause us to be more holy. Cause us to be happy. Those who exude the joy of our salvation. Christ is our champion. He cannot fail. He's proven that. Father, strengthen our, our faith in believing that. We ask that you would draw near to us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand.